Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Tori Peterson, on the many ways God has worked in her life. I was conceived out of abuse. And I think, you know, in that situation, there are people who would say, you know, you can just get an abortion. You don't have to have this baby, but my mom generously gave me life. And I'm so grateful she did because as hard as life has been at times, I'm really thankful that I get to live, that I get to have life. That's Tori Peterson next. Tori Hope Peterson, as many would see it, had the odds stacked against her. She grew up with a mentally ill mother and lived in 12 different foster homes. She was at great risk of being homeless, jobless, and on drugs. However, she overcame because of Christ in her life. After so many years of being on one side of foster care as a child, she's now on the other side as a foster mom adoptive mom, and biological mom. Kimberly Birchall is with Tori Peterson to find out about her difficult but inspirational life she discusses in her book, Fostered, One Woman's Powerful Story of Finding Faith and Family Through Foster Care. Tori, thank you so much for joining me here today to talk about your book, Fostered, a Memoir. When you were growing up, did you ever imagine that you would one day write a book about your life as a foster child? I would say not when I was like a teenager. I actually have this very vivid memory of, I was doing an internship at a church and the pastor, there was two other um, young people that I was doing the internship with. And the pastor who was our boss um, or our superior, he was like, today we're going to do speaking. And so he had us all get on stage and it was only three minutes we had to fill. And I was like so angry at him that he made me do that. And so, I mean, that has more to do with like me being a speaker, but I really think it all, you know, plays into the same thing. I just did not imagine that this is what I would be doing um, for a career on and Honestly, I thought like people did this stuff as like a hobby. <laughs> I didn't think it could be people's entire callings. But then I, I went on my first missions trip to Ethiopia my after my freshman year of college. And I started sharing um, just my experience in Ethiopia, kind of like a blog post per day. And then um, from that, people were like, you're such a beautiful writer. You have such a beautiful voice. And I went on and I would, I went on to go to college and I would share my story, you know, pieces of my story here and there just on social media. And people would say, Tori, you should really write a book. And, um, I was like, yeah, you know, it didn't really like, like, oh, people are just being nice. But then I felt really a conviction from the Lord after I attended a conference. It was like a leadership conference, Christian leadership conference. And just really felt convicted that uh, God wanted me to share my story, my testimony of what he had done in my life and um, help others share their testimony and their stories so that they could see what God had done in their life and so that they could inspire others. Um, And that was really, that was in 2019. And that conference really was a bit of a catalyst for me. And so I started sending out uh, 
proposals to literary agents. And I actually had over 50 people say no to me. Uh, they were like, nobody knows you. Like, who are you? <laughs> I was like, okay, that's fair. They're like, no one's going to buy your book. Like no one knows you. And so um, I was like, I'm just going to keep sharing on social media, you know, use what I have right where I am. And that just grew. And um, a publisher actually reached out to me and offered me a book deal. And that's how, that's how I am where I am today. All right. I'd have to say, though, many authors, nobody knows them before they write a book, right? So I'm not sure about that. But maybe times have changed so much because of social media. I, I guess, was that their point? Because really, no author is known until they write a book. Yeah, right. That's so funny. I think that now the way that publishers want books to be written a lot of times, like if they don't believe in the voice, um, if they don't, if there's like not a guarantee in that person's story, I think that they're like, we want, they want people to, they want to see people have a platform because a platform results in sales. And that's really sad um, because it is really stifling a lot of voices that need to be heard. Sure. I mean, social media can be, especially for people who struggle with mental illness, it can be such a toxic place. And so it's really, I think it's really sad um, that this is the way things are moving. And I hope that, I hope that we'll grow out of it. Sure. So it sounds like that's how you decided to write a memoir, though, was the conviction that came from the Lord? Or what made you decide to put it in the form of a memoir? Well, I just didn't even know any other form that I would put it in. I was always like, yeah, I should, you know, when I was sharing on social media, I was sharing stories, you know, little vignettes about my life and that people seem very drawn to them. And so that's, um, and moved by them, um, influenced people would say that message me and say, you know, we became foster parents because of you. Uh, we, we became foster parents years ago because we heard your testimony and now we're adopting our daughter tomorrow. Um, and the influx of messages just kept coming through. And now the amount of messages I get, it's truly overwhelming. And I just like can't emphasize enough that all the glory goes to God and um, the motivation that he has given me to continue on, even when social media gets draining um, and hard. It's really because of the Lord and those messages I get. But I, I shared it in a memoir because I was like, oh, this is really what's inspiring people. Just this like raw I feel like people are searching for authenticity in a world that is very curated with social media and even with social media as vulnerable as a person tries to be. It isn't real life. You can't be completely vulnerable or real on there. There are missing pieces. We only have uh, so many words that we can share in a caption, so much you can share in a picture. But there was I was on a podcast the other day and the woman she said, you are just so relatable um, on your Instagram because you took a picture with your kids and your dishwasher was wide open and there were dishes on the sink. <laughs> and I thought, I'm like, that's so funny that like, that's our standard of relatable, right? But I mean, I really think people are just searching for, for someone who's like, yeah, I'm not perfect and I don't look um, curated or... Mm -hmm. People are just looking for something that's real. And I don't, I'm not like intentionally trying to be like, oh, I'm so vulnerable or so raw. I just think that, um, you know, in the foster care system, when you move from home to home to home, you're trying to make people accept you. You want people to love you. And there's a lot of curating that goes on with that. And I think just as an adult, I'm like, I don't have the energy. I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to be known. Yeah. 
Let's talk about the book. And I want to start with the dedication because I think it will give our listeners um, sort of a glimpse into the whole book. You dedicate the book to your babies, those you have and those not yet in your home. Tell me about that sentence. So I have two biological children and my husband and I have also adopted a young man who is now an adult. So we're Gen Zs, who are parents of Gen Zs, and my husband and I um, also hope to foster and adopt. We are going through the process of getting relicensed as foster parents in um, the state of Ohio because we just recently moved. And so, you know, my my book goes out to them because they have been such a huge motivation for living a different life than uh, how I grew up. I wanted to be a good mom from really a teenage, from an adolescent age. And I had a lot of motivation to change my character, change my life for the sake of my children Mm -hmm. that I didn't even have yet. Mm -hmm. You dedicate it to your mama, who is the reason that you actually ended up in foster care. Um, And yet you call her your hero. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Well, my mom had a very hard upbringing. She was abused and she's just went through a lot of pain. And I think that contributes a lot to the mental illness that she struggles with. My mom um, was going through a very hard time in her mid-20s. Both of her parents had passed away and um, I was conceived out of abuse. And I think, you know, in that situation, there are people who would say, you know, you can just get an abortion. You don't have to have this baby. But my mom generously gave me life. And I'm so grateful she did because as hard as life has been at times, I'm really thankful that I get to live, that I get to have life. And you are an advocate for life because of that very reason. You were were conceived out of abuse. And yet here you are and God is using you for his glory. Mm, Thank you. Yes. Okay, the next one is Scott. You dedicate the book to Scott. So who is Scott? And when did he first come into your life? Scott is my track coach. He became my track coach my sophomore year of high school when I transferred um, schools because I was moving foster homes. And, you know, there were people, he tells me, and I knew there were people that said, you know, you don't want to be involved with that girl. She's trouble. She'll get you in trouble. Uh, She's been moved in a lot of homes in a short amount of time. And he just said, I just want to help her. Like, I just want to be there for her. And he was really just a mentor and father figure to me. And then the year between my junior and senior year, he told me that he thought I could go on and win the state track meet. And that was a very different narrative than the one that I was hearing from uh, other people in my community who said that I was going to be a statistic, Um, things that I heard from caseworkers, I was going to be like my mom, which was one of my biggest fears. And so I just kind of latched on to that narrative, latched on to our relationship and grew a lot through that. And that year I became a four-time state champion in track and field. And Scott actually welcomed me into his family and um, his home became my home. Tell us about Tanya. She had an amazing effect on your life as well. Tanya came into my life when I was in junior high. She is a minister. She worked for Youth for Christ And as part of that ministry, she would uh, pick up girls who came from hard places and she would make us all dinner and take us to church on Wednesday nights. Um, But I do think that she 
I don't know. I think, I don't know if she took a special liking to me or if she just knew that I was in a particularly hard situation. I think that my uh, situation was a bit harder than a lot of the other girls where they came from in terms of like abuse and neglect. And so Tanya would come and pick me and my sister up and she would just take us to her home and make sure that we were fed and, you know, we were doing okay. Um, especially when my mom would have moments of mania. And I remember one time I was at Tanya's house, we were doing a small group. That's what it was called. And to me, I thought that was a Bible study. That's how I understood it at church. And I remember I looked, we were doing like an art project and I was like, Tanya, like this is supposed to be a Bible study. So why aren't we reading the Bible? (laughs) And she was like, well, sometimes you don't have to just tell people about Jesus. Sometimes you have to show people Jesus. And that really is the epitome of who Tanya is and who she's been in my life. That says a lot in that statement, just showing people Jesus instead of telling them all the time. Yes. Next, of course, is your husband. How did he come into your life? My husband and I met at Hillstone College in 2017 or 2018, and that's where we both graduated from. We met our senior years, uh, got married a week after college graduation, um, and he's just been along for the ride ever since, faithfully, lovingly, loyally. He's great. And I love what you say uh, next. You said, and God, and you say, who gifted you the messy and stunning life to draw you closer to him. When did you come to know Jesus as your Savior, and how would you encourage others to see their messy lives as a gift from God? Oh, well, I love the quote from Mary Oliver. Um, She says, someone once gifted me a box of darkness, and it took me time to realize that this too was a gift. Um, I resonate with that quote so much um, when I think about, you know, what my mom has given me, especially. Um, I have learned so much, I feel, about empathy and compassion and forgiveness and love because of this life that God has gifted me. But I didn't really come to know the Lord until I was 17 years old. I know that the Lord was there the whole time. Like I can look, and that's part of why I was drawn to him because he just gave me this image, like this video image in my heart and in my head where I could see that he was there my whole entire life, loving me, protecting me, that he was the father that I had always yearned for. Um, But when I was 17, I was in the church that Tanya was in and that church, they just wrapped around me. They loved me well. They didn't have any expectations on me. What I loved about them was that like they didn't know the end of the story, but they still loved me as I was. They didn't know that I was going to be a success, quote unquote, success story that I am today. Um, But they didn't care. They just showed up and invited me in. And I was, I was really drawn to the church because of that. I always felt like I didn't really belong, um, whether that was in racial circles, political circles, um, class circles. I just never really felt like I belonged. And then going from home to home, that was very amplified. But the church, my church, where I was saved and it just really felt like a safe place for me. Oh, that every church would be a safe place for Tories right? That's what we need to be. 
you give a trigger warning in the author's note at the beginning of the book. Who is that warning for? Um, you know, that warning is for people who have been abused in any way, people who have had any experience in the foster care system, whether that's as a parent or a child or a biological parent. Um, I think it can all be very triggering if you've ever had your children, you know, taken away from you for any capacity. I think I, I really wanted to warn anyone um, who has had any human trafficking survivors, anyone who's had any form of trauma, really just wanted to give them that warning so that they could kind of take it in at their own pace. I remember I read a book once called The Body Keeps the Score. Okay, that's like it's been on the New York Times bestseller list forever. Everybody recommends it. And I picked it up and I started to read it like a novel. And I was just eaten alive by that book. You know, it's one of the best books in our nation, like for weeks, but that book ate me alive. It was so triggering so difficult to read. And then like I told people and they're like, well, Tori, you're, you're not supposed to read it like a novel. And I was like, they're like, it's like a textbook. I'm like, it doesn't look like a textbook. It looks like, it looks like a memoir. I mean, I knew it wasn't a memoir, but like, to me, I thought it was just like one of those books, uh, informative books that you read front to back. And, um, I wanted to be sure because of that experience, especially, and I still love that book, would recommend it to people. Again, I would just, I, before I recommend that book to people, I give them a trigger warning. Um, but I wanted to be sure that in the, in the front of, I, I also, I think if, it, if you have a good book, you don't really need an introduction to it. Um, but I felt like in this case, I was like, I'm going to add an introduction in a way that serves people so that they know what into. So give us a glimpse of what we learn about you and the foster care system through your book. You know, I wrote the book because I wanted youth in foster care to know that even if they feel like they didn't belong, even if there's not a place for them on earth, that God has built a room for them in a kingdom. And that trumps every other place and space of not belonging. If someone has said, I don't want you to be my daughter, I want you to be my son. God, whose opinion trumps every other opinion, says, you are a child of mine. That's really the premise that I really want people to take away from the book. But it has been so uh, wild to see that I guess I'm educating caseworkers, foster parents, um, people who want to get involved in the foster care system. And I think the thing that I continue to hear that I love so much is that people are saying that the book is teaching them how to love. The book has taught them how to love people on the margins uh, that we can often forget. And I don't know if I could ask for anything better than that. I'm really thankful that that's what people are saying. How many foster homes were you actually in? So if I count right, I believe that I lived in 12 from the first time that I entered when I was three um, to the time that I re-entered when I was an adolescent and until the time that I emancipated when I was 18. In those homes, you know, some of them were short term. We knew when I entered into them that I was only going to be there for a week or two. Um, it was just kind of like the glue that was there until they found me a more long-term placement. Some just weren't a good fit. Some I broke really big rules in that I just needed to move and some I broke small rules in that you know, I probably shouldn't have moved and the foster parents should have been a little bit more thick skin, should have worked it out. But foster kids move um, for a various amount of reasons. But something that we do know is that a large um, part of the foster care community is also the infertility community. 
uh, people struggling with infertility and going through uh, the heartaches of that mm. are searching to make their families more whole, more complete. So something that I speak to in the book is I, I encourage people, especially in the infertility community or anyone getting into the foster care system to remember that we should be stepping into it, not as a way to heal us, but as a way um, to bring healing to others. Were there certain chapters for you that were harder to write than others? Yeah, there were definitely, I would say, and again, like I would say, this is a trigger warning. A lot of the abuse, especially the sexual abuse that I endured, those chapters were the hardest you know, I went to therapy when I was younger, started therapy for the things that happened to me when I was 12, um, continued on until I was 18 um, in the foster care system. And then I went to therapy in college as well. So, um, you know, you think that you've kind of dealt with these things, but then when you have to bring them back to the very surface of your life, and it, it's very challenging. And the way that it works when you write a book is you have to go over it and you edit it a million times, and then your editor edits it a million times. So you really go back over it a lot mm-hmm. and you step into the space. You step in as um, the writer, but you also step in as a reader. You know, I'm thinking about how is this going to affect and serve the people that are reading this book? And there's just so much um, to consider while writing a book. And I would say those parts were the most challenging because I didn't want to write them for shock effect or for attention. You know, that's something that people also say about survivors, that we're telling our stories to get attention. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be very, and I also didn't want to distract, you know, from the hope above all else that I was trying to, to speak to throughout the book. So those parts were hard emotionally, but they were also hard to navigate in terms of how is this going to affect my reader? What is it like for kids who age out of the foster care program? Well, let me tell you, there is this myth that when kids age out of foster care at the age of 18, that they lose all their resources. And that is not true anymore. That happened, you know, like, not like more than 10 years ago, the the rules, the laws, the policies have been changed. There is now extended foster care in some states until youth are 27 years old, where they can receive um, a lot of resources. And in some cases, youth are kicked out at 18 out of, uh, you know, their foster homes. But like caseworkers, uh, county agencies, they they continue to like get stipends to foster parents. Foster parents continue to receive stipends for youth who live in their home who are above 18 to incentivize continuing to parent that child. Children get incentives. Um, There are so many, you know, house incentives for free housing and then stipends. I I have um, a youth that I work with in my community who receives a stipend of $1,400 a month and gets free housing, which I think is a bit excessive. But at the same time, I, I want to emphasize that the, the infrastructure and the problems of the foster care system really are being rebuilt and they are being reconsidered and the foster care system is improving. However, the sad part is that a lot of youth leave foster care when they turn 18. They choose to. I chose to. 
because we feel so burned by the foster care system because we weren't listened to, no one heard us, you know, we might've reported abuse, people didn't believe us. And so that's the real problem that we're seeing when kids uh, turn 18. It's not that the resources aren't there. It's that kids are saying, I don't want them because I don't want all these people in my life who have caused so much hurt. So that's why it's so important that the foster care system, the improvement, um, we've, we've put all the improvements in place after a kid emancipates. Now we need to bring improvement to the, the foster care system when the children are in, in care. I listened to a TEDx talk that you did, and you talk about the report card or the book that's on each child and that it doesn't tell the, the whole story. What would you like to see change in that regard? Well, you know, there are usually one or two people that are responsible for what's put in a child's case file. I think there needs to be more accountability around that. I think there are things in a child's case file that can be complete lies or exaggerated in terms of their behaviors, um, whether that's put in by foster parents or caseworkers. And what I've also seen is that, you know, a, a foster kid moves from home to home to home, and they just feel like they have to dig themselves out of a hole when the foster parents are, this is their first impression of them. So I think what I would like to see change is just more accountability of what's put in there. I think that when kids turn maybe 12 or 13, that they should have a voice about what what's put in there. And we should put in like the positive things about the child as well. You know, they're good at sports. They love their family in this way. They love cooking. Like talk about the, the beautiful parts of this child. When we see the videos, there are nonprofits, you know, that make videos of kids and those kids get to portray themselves in the best way put that in the kid's file. Those are the things that we should be able to see because how we see kids, it's how they see themselves. And so we really need to work around changing the narrative of how kids see themselves. Mm, very good. I want you to finish this sentence for me, if you would, please. My hope for the book is to cause people to blank. Fill in the blank. Be lovingly and erratically hospitable. Welcome people in. Welcome people in. That's it in a nutshell. Very, very good. Thank you so much. Now, on a side note, you're also Mrs. Universe 2022, 20, right? And that gives you a huge platform, though. What a blessing. That gives you, uh, give me a quick rundown on how that came about and what do you use, you know, how are you using that platform to get your word out? Yeah. Um, so my husband and I were fostering a sibling group of three and um, I really just wanted to do something that was more fun. That was different. That kind of just separated like my mind from the book. I was writing the book also in the midst of fostering a sibling group of three. It was just a heavy season. I was like, let's do something fun. Um, and pageantry sounded really fun. Doing my makeup, doing my hair, getting dressed every day um real nice and I was already speaking already writing I was doing all those things so I was like why not make it like a party <laughs> and um you know I really felt God convict me I was in prayer time and I remember it so vividly uh where the Lord just said you don't have to be a varsity Christian you don't have to work for me just be with me mm -hmm. and I was like I, I was literally like I don't even know how to do that because my Really, since I've been saved, I was like, Lord, take my life and glorify yourself with it. Like, do whatever you want with me. I want to be a vessel for you. 
And so um, really didn't know, like, what does it mean to just be with God? And even in that in that sphere, I was still like doing stuff for God. But I felt more like I understood how to do something fun. Um, so I, I did the pageant in Las Vegas and um, I won the pageant. And, you know, I'm so grateful for that time, but I, I would never do a pageant again. I do believe that pageantry is, it was a very unhealthy, um, unhealthy culture. And it is a, a great title, but it doesn't change who I am. I'm the same person that I was before and after that title. And I hope that that's how people see me above all else as a consistent person of integrity and of good character. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Tori Hope Peterson, author of Fostered, one woman's powerful story of finding faith and family through foster care. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Matthew Bennett on looking at the American church and culture through the eyes of a missionary. I think the lenses that a missionary brings to observing their circumstances and the, the environments around them can actually be acutely beneficial to looking at some of the hot button issues that have been raised within evangelicalism and hopefully uh, presenting some ways that we can redeem and restore those very valuable core tenets while also being self-critical in a, a helpful and creative sort of way. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.